So if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been working through a study on the book of Ephesians, and today we are in chapter 4. Now this morning will be slightly different for us in terms of emphasis than has been typical over the past probably several weeks, because instead of kind of drilling deeply down into a passage, we're going to just zoom out a little bit and see the passage in light of the book of Ephesians as a whole. The reason I think this is the right thing to do is because there's two things we need to understand in order to rightly understand this passage in Ephesians 4. The first is we need to understand the Old Testament reference from which it's drawn, and that's Psalm 68. And so we'll spend some time in Psalm 68 this morning because we need to not only understand the original context of that verse, but we need to understand the trajectory of the psalm in order to rightly process what Paul is saying here. And then second, in order to understand it accurately, I think we need to see it in light of its full context within the theme of the letter. That's a good thing to do normally, but that's especially important to do for this passage. Our passage is Ephesians 4, verses 9 and 10, and I'm excited about it for, for two reasons. One, you'll, you'll notice that it's really just a, a parenthesis. It's just a parenthetical, and we'll be preaching through the parenthetical. Uh, so what's exciting is that Paul is, is mentioning powerful, huge truths in just kind of a passing reference right here. and It shows you how, how rich the Word of God actually is. Secondly, I think as we zoom out to see this passage in its context of Ephesians, it will help us to see more clearly the incomparable glory of Jesus. Our passage is chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, but let's, let's begin in verse 7 just to get the flow of thought. You'll remember that Here Paul has just emphasized the importance of the unity of the church. And then he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Lord, please lead us by your spirit now into all truth that we might behold the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So let's just get the main point of the passage before us this morning, and we'll just use it as a banner that kind of flies over the entire message. The main, the main point here is this. From a victorious position of ultimate authority in heaven, Jesus gives powerful gifts to strengthen his people to fulfill our mission on earth. This is what we see here in these verses, that Jesus is ministering from a victorious position of ultimate authority in heaven. 
And from this place, he is giving powerful gifts to strengthen his people to fulfill our mission on earth, namely the great commission that he has given us. And in order to see this, I just want to do two things. One, spend some time in Psalm 68. And two, trace out the theme or the context of spiritual warfare or the the battle that's occurring uh, in the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul uses verses 9 and 10, our verses for this morning, of chapter 4 in Ephesians, really to explain the meaning of verse 8. What he's doing here is demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person that he's referring to here is Jesus. Now, for those of us who have grown up in Sunday school in the Bible Belt, you'd say, right, no kidding, Paul's talking about Jesus here. But remember that the bulk of Paul's teaching ministry is to explain from the scriptures, to reason with the people, showing that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. And he's doing that from the Old Testament. So what becomes powerful here is not just seeing that he's talking to Jesus, talking about Jesus in the flow of Ephesians 4, but to realize he's setting that in an Old Testament context, which becomes breathtaking when we consider the greatness of the glory of the one who is on display here. Now, the reference in Ephesians 4.8 is pulled from Psalm 68 and verse 18. Now, if you like movies with, with epic battle scenes, or if you like movies with powerful villains and even more powerful heroes, then Psalm 68 is probably your psalm. It is a powerful psalm. In a sense, throughout history, It has actually served as as kind of a battle hymn for the people of God. The French Huguenots were a group of Christians originally led by John Calvin after he was exiled from Geneva uh, during the Protestant Reformation. The reason they have become famous in history is because of how powerful their story of persecution is. They were persecuted violently for their faith in France, and thousands of them were martyred. The persecution was so severe for them that they had to meet to gather for worship out in the woods or sometimes in caves or just in remote areas. So their churches or their assemblies became known as churches of the desert. They were characterized by two things. One, faithful preaching of God's word, and two, fervent singing of the Psalms. One man described the impact of singing Psalm 68, which by many accounts was their favorite psalm. He said, when, when we sang it together as the people of God, no matter, no matter what we were facing, we flew when we heard it. We flew as if with wings. We felt within us an animating ardor, a a, a transporting desire. The feeling cannot be expressed in words. It is a thing that must have been felt to be known. 
however weary we might be, we thought no more of our fatigue and grew light as soon as the psalm reached our ear. Now, now singing Psalm 68 so unnerved the authorities of the time that they actually outlawed it. Probably because the the context of Psalm 68 is that God is completely routing his enemies and the enemies of his people, and he is compassionately rescuing his people from harm. From Psalm 68... We as the people of God receive both warning and incredible comfort. If you're here this morning, and maybe you've been kind of squeamish about letting your faith be known in public, whether that's at school or in your neighborhood or, or at work. Maybe you've become faint-hearted in your battle against sin. Or or maybe you look around in the culture, or more globally, and, and you have doubts about God's conquering power over the world. May God use Psalm 68 to remind you that God will defeat every last one of his enemies in such a completely devastating manner that it will erase every doubt in any person's mind that God and God alone is undefeated in battle, unchallenged in authority, unrivaled in power, utterly unfazed by evil, and completely unsurpassed in glory. Now, if you're here this morning and you know that you are living in opposition to this God, consider the futility of your actions and consider the foolishness of your thinking if you believe that you will ultimately somehow, on a technicality, escape the judgment of an infinitely powerful being who sees absolutely every single thing you do, who hears with perfect clarity absolutely every single thing you say, and who knows Every single thought you have. Now, if this reality doesn't cause you to pause before you sin, or if that reality doesn't strike fear into your heart, if you are living, actively living in opposition to this God, I can assure you that one day when when this God directly fixes his gaze on you, this reality will terrify you. Psalm 68 opens with these words. God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered. 
and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But maybe you're here this morning and your heart is more in a a broken place. Maybe maybe depression has has wrapped wrapped itself around you so tightly that it's suffocating your joy leaving you wondering if tomorrow could even be different That's true. Psalm 68 and verse 3 contrasts the assurance of the destruction of God's enemies with the pure joy that will come to his people in his glorious presence. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Now my prayer for you is that that before we get to glory, if you are battling frustration and disappointment and depression itself. My hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will see the hope that you have in Jesus and somehow the light will get through so that you will have joy now. But I can promise you this. One day, you will be more joyful than you can possibly imagine. And I promise you that is true based on the authority of the Word of God. And that joy will never, ever Go away. What, what if you're here this morning and you, you feel lost? Just forgotten by God. May I remind you that the same all-seeing eye of God that notices every sin also searches out those who live on the margins. Those who feel pressed to the periphery and therefore those who feel oppressed by shame. If that's you, take heart from from these words. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. This God is the father of the fatherless. He's the protector of widows. He places the lonely in families and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. He is at the same time terrifying to his enemies and so tender to the weak and the vulnerable. If you're here this morning, therefore, and your heart is fragile, and, and you, just, you just feel overwhelmed. If you feel like you just need to be rescued again. If you need the generous provision of His grace to make it just from one moment to the next, let alone from one day to the next, Psalm 68, 19 has encouragement for you too. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. So he just, not only does he rule the cosmos in sovereign power, 
He provides for our daily needs. From moment to moment, we receive grace from His hand. Now, Psalm 68 has two main parts. Part one is that God is routing His enemies from Sinai marching to Jerusalem. Part two is that God God delivers His people and He's building His kingdom, calling people from nations from afar to worship Him. So, the powerful imagery of this psalm, that is Psalm 68, is of God leading His people with terrifying strength as He destroys His enemies and theirs. And yet He deals He deals so tenderly with his people as he continues to draw more and more people to himself. Now, the trajectory of Psalm 68 moves from God's descent to earth at Sinai. Every account about that, every verse that speaks to it is absolutely terrifying in the book of Exodus. When, when this God comes to earth, he descends to earth at Sinai. And then the trajectory is that he deliberately marches to Jerusalem as he destroys the enemy of his people and then ascends to be enthroned in glory over his people. This is the trajectory of Psalm 68. Who does that remind you of? Listen to the the beautiful imagery from verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 68. Close your eyes if you want to. The chariots of God are twice 10,000. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leaving a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So the picture here is that God is absolutely victorious. And all people are giving him gifts, even his defeated enemies, The rebellious are bending the knee and bringing him gifts, acknowledging the glory due his name. So stop for a moment and realize that if this is Jesus, with whom we are in union, consider the the gravity and the integrity of a being that is so glorious that every single creature sooner or later will bow before him to acknowledge his glory. This psalm, that is Psalm 68, ends with these powerful words. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens. The ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength 
to his people, blessed be God. So, in these final verses, and in particular, this final verse, we see that God is victorious over his enemies. He is now ascended in glory, seated on his throne, graciously and generously giving power and strength to his people. This is the imagery that Paul is using here in Ephesians 4. Psalm 68, therefore, is pointing to the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus descended from heaven to earth. He routed the enemies of God. He drew the weak and vulnerable to himself. He ascended to the sanctuary of God and sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And from this position of ultimate authority, he's giving powerful gifts to strengthen his people in the form of grace. Varied grace according to the measure of his gift, so that Jesus might fill all things through the mission that is the great commission that he has given to the church. That's what Paul is illustrating with this example. Chief among these gifts is the Holy Spirit himself and the the varied, that is the, the multifaceted, kind of multi-textured and multi-glorious ministry of spiritual gifts, of varied grace, given to God's people and exercised through Him. That is exercised through the person of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, things that Jesus said in the Gospels that seem borderline crazy actually make perfect sense. John fourteen twelve. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Once he went to the Father, the Holy Spirit came down in glory at Pentecost. So the image Paul is referencing is of Jesus enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father, giving gifts to men in celebration of his victory over his enemies, gifts that empower his people to fulfill the mission he has given them. Let's, let's say that another way. The reason Jesus is giving spiritual gifts to his people, that is the church, the reason he's giving spiritual gifts at all here in chapter 4 is to equip them with spiritual weapons with which to fight a spiritual war. That's the context in Ephesians. In other words, you have joined the battle. Jesus has defeated his enemies, but we are to fight alongside him until he returns in glory. So if you're wondering why things are hard, in this world, it's because we as the people of God are at war. I don't want you to take my word for it. 
I don't want you to just trust your experiences. Let's see it from the Word of God. If we trace this theme out from the opening verses of Ephesians, we are alerted to the spiritual reality that Paul is explaining. We don't have to get very far into the letter. Chapter 1 and verse 3, after introducing himself, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The plan in Christ is to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. That is, the spiritual realm and the temporal, physical, earthly realm are to be united at the end of time. Now what we're looking at here, what we're tracing out, is the spiritual context of the book of Ephesians. Continuing on in chapter 1, Paul prays that God will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to even understand the importance and the greatness of his power toward us who believe. The reason that's important is because we are at war. This power, which comes from the greatness of his might, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenlies or in the spiritual places. This place of honor was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. In context, this means spiritual beings. Angelic beings, both holy and unholy. Chapter 2 of Ephesians opens with Paul reminding us that we once walked following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. That is, the enemy of God. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, Listen to Paul's language here. The whole thing is about this spiritual war. God says, despite our spiritual deadness and our spiritual captivity to the prince of the power of the air, God saved us by his grace and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, which means far above all rule and authority. So how, how powerful does that imagery now appear from Psalm 68 where the Lord is riding through the heavens in thousands among thousands and thousands and thousands of chariots reigning in glory. The question becomes, how can we live when things seem bleak to us? And if we're being really transparent, when we feel completely defeated, the answer that we're seeing being revealed in Ephesians is by trusting in the victory of Jesus on our behalf. This victory was achieved in in the most extraordinary way. Verse 9 of Ephesians 4, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? That is a reference to his incarnation, which is what we see in chapter 2. He came and preached. 
That is, the Son of God came from heaven to earth and preached and delivered us through the cross, which killed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, making it possible for them to become one church, one people. Now, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, we see that the arena where this spiritual battle plays out is on earth, and in particular, in the church. So, in very practical ways, God calls us to unity for this expressed purpose. Chapter 3 and verse 10. So that, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities, that is, angelic spiritual beings, both holy and demonic, in the heavenly places. Certainly part of the mission of the church is the Great Commission on earth. But as it relates to the spiritual realm, our job, our main purpose, is to testify to the greatness of the glory of God seen in the way that we live. That's what tells demons of hell that God is glorious. That's why every single act of obedience rooted and grounded in the victory of Jesus by faith, it matters. The way that you fight sin matters because it testifies about the worth of God. The way that you speak to others, every single word matters because it testifies to how you view Jesus. The way that you honor your parents, 100% of the time, matters. The way that you love your spouse, matters. The way that you treat your friends, matters. All of it matters because all of it testifies to the wisdom of God and the victory of Jesus over the demonic powers. Having been rescued, Paul prays at the end of chapter 3 that we will be strengthened with power through his spirit that we might be filled with all the fullness of God according to the power now at work in us. That's because the Holy Spirit comes to live within us when we enter into union with Jesus. Prior to that, we were held captive by the spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the Apostle Paul explaining clearly what is happening on this earth in the cosmic realm. Therefore, we are called to unity in chapter 4 within the context of this spiritual battle. We are given spiritual gifts to fulfill this mission so that we would grow up into Christ. This makes sense because if anything happens to the church, this plan is over. There is no plan B. That's why Jesus prayed for our unity right before he went to Gethsemane. We are told to put off our old selves and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self. We are to give no opportunity for the devil, chapter 4 and verse 27, and we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit, chapter 4 and verse 30. Do you see how for Paul all of this is a spiritual battle? Every element of it. 
There is no, there's no such thing as mundane obedience to God. Everything has cosmic implications. We are to inherit the kingdom of Christ and God, chapter 5 and verse 5, and we are not to be deceived. The days are evil, so we should make the best use of the time and be filled with the Spirit, chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. Our marriages image something greater than ourselves, namely the spiritual union of Christ with his church. So there is a sense in which if you are not treating your spouse with kindness and love, you are blaspheming God. Because you're saying, this is what Jesus, this is how Jesus loves his church, and this is what the church thinks of Jesus, the way I treat my spouse, the way I speak about myself, my spouse, whether I love them and care for them, or whether that I fight them and in opposition to them. Our marriages point to something greater than themselves. Which brings us to chapter 6. When we are exhorted to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. To be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because Paul wants us to understand that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenlies or in the spiritual places. All of this is crescendoing to one climax. And that is that in verse 8, the host of captives captured by Jesus are the demonic forces of evil. I don't see any other way to interpret this in light of this massive, overarching theme in the book of Ephesians. God triumphed over them in Christ on the cross when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame through the public spectacle of the crucifixion. See, the devil thought, if I can crucify Jesus in public, this will bring dishonor to God's name. He will be shamed. And God flipped that completely flipped it. And he said, world, behold the love of my son. And he put demonic forces to open shame because they could do nothing to divert his love away from the Father. And he is our glorious substitute. Where we have failed, he has been victorious. Therefore, we are to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Once we've been saved by Jesus, he gives his spirit to his people and he equips us with spiritual gifts to fulfill the commission that he has given us. In the words of Jesus, he is able to do this because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the climactic verse of the Gospel of Matthew. There are 28 chapters of introduction so that we can understand what Matthew means when he quotes Jesus saying that. It's a similar argument here in Ephesians chapter 4. Or, or to put it another way, Jesus was ministering 
in the region of Palestine. And something that we don't think of particularly often when we think of Jesus is that Jesus was an exorcist. No one could stand against him. Demons tormented his people. And when Jesus showed up, before he said a word, they fell down on the ground and begged for mercy. And God delivered his people from those demonic forces. This confused the religious leaders so much that they actually accused Jesus of doing what he was doing by the power of evil. I think it's because they thought they must be working in this thing together because how could anything have that kind of authority? How could anyone have that kind of authority? When they accused Jesus of this, he said, that's a dumb argument. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And Jesus further said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Therefore, if this world is the place where the devil reigns, Jesus has bound him. He has captured him, and therefore his people are free. Jesus Christ is the true strong man. In the present, what this means is that we can operate in freedom and with confidence and joy in this world because Jesus has bound Satan. Now, his followers, yes, yes, his followers are still wreaking havoc, but that's why we've been called into the war. But any suffering that God allows through evil for us to endure as we remain faithful testifies to the spiritual powers that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the bigger picture of what is at stake here. So take heart. No matter what you are facing this morning, Jesus has bound the strong man and he has overcome the world. The implications of this for the future means that, that we will have forever to celebrate the fullness of all that God has done for us in Christ. Because one day, we together will live in the presence of God because of our union with Jesus. On that day, your sin and my sin will be no more. On that day, nothing, nothing will be able to cause us to fear. Nothing will be able to discourage us. 
Nothing will be able to instill doubt into our minds that God is anything but perfectly good and perfectly glorious. And that he will be that way forever. Brothers and sisters, that will be our reality. And it will be our reality forever and ever and ever. To the glory of the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. Amen. Lord, would you now encourage us as we soak in the reality of these truths. Father, you know us so well. You know that we look out at the culture and we look out at the world and we look into the mirror and we say, really? You have defeated Satan and you have him bound? Perhaps we don't understand what it would look like for him to be unbound. Or perhaps we don't understand how graciously you deal with our hearts as you reveal your glory to us. So this morning, would you, would you cause us to trust in this truth? That you have bound Satan. And therefore, no matter how hard life in this world becomes, he can do nothing to separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has vanquished Satan. So to that end, build our strength and confidence in you, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.